Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm excited to share today's guest interview with you. This guest is Jason Perro. Now, Jason and his wife, Nadia, first started investing in real estate in 2001 when they purchased their first duplex. They now own and operate over 300 apartments in the Erie slash Northwest Pennsylvania area of the region. So it's going to be exciting today to talk with Jason and learn how he's been able to grow and scale his portfolio using almost no external capital from other people. Jason's going to share a ton of insights around how he's grown his business, how he operates his apartments, and just tons of great value. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. All right, today, welcome on the show, Jason Perro. Hey, Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jacob, thanks for having me on. Hey, it's our pleasure. Well, Jason, for the audience members that don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got started in the world of real estate investing, and just kind of your journey up to this point? Sure. I purchased my first duplex in 2001. My wife and I bought it. I was in the corporate world. She was still finishing up college at the time. Bought our second and third rental property a year later, a week before our wedding. Both worked in pharmaceutical sales. I did that a few years, moved into medical device sales. Did that until 20. 2012 when we got to about 300 rental units. So I quit my day job at that time. She had already been out of it for a few years. Fast forward to today, I've got 650 units, have another about 67 to 70 under contract, and I'm underwriting a, a 200 plus unit deal right now. So got a lot of things in the hopper, recently started syndicating, done a lot of really creative real estate, creative financing, had some joint venture debt partners over the last couple of years. So done a little bit of everything in the space from single family homes up to large 80 unit plus complexes. Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to dig into kind of the back end of all those larger apartment deals you're doing. But first, walk us through like that very first deal, why you bought it, what was going through your mind at that time, you know, that duplex, not exactly the most common path to especially convince your wife to, hey, let's move into a duplex, right? And have some neighbors that are biased, constantly bothering us. So tell us kind of what was your mindset going into that first deal? So yeah, we did not house hack. We did not live in that. Oh, okay. Got it. No, I wish I did. I mean, that's one thing <laughs> looking back, we could have saved even more money. But when I started getting interested in real estate, never knew much about making money or building wealth or those types of things. And I had an internship in college that where I interned with a financial planning company and was going through the files of customers, setting up meetings for the brokers. And one thing I started learning about was that all these people with insane amounts of wealth all had real estate. And some of them had kind of very modest W-2 income, but they had a significant net 
net worth. And but then there was high income earners like doctors and lawyers that had seven eight hundred thousand dollar combined annual income, but almost a zero net worth. So it was a big clue. Said, oh wow, people can make money at real estate. That seems like what I I should be doing. Had my eyes set on buying rental property, and I just started asking like people at work, family, friends, anybody that I knew that had real estate. And somebody had said, hey, you should talk to his name is Richard Devore, and they said, hey, you should talk to Mr. Devore. Him and his brother-in-law own a bunch of rental properties. I think the thought was, hey, they can talk you out of it. <laughs> Didn't work, did it? <laughs> like, oh, you're interested in real estate? I, I have a duplex. He's like, it's a great business, especially when you're young. Let me show it to you. And, and it was like a $32,000 duplex in your EPA. It wasn't anything fancy. I still own it today. Put a lot of work into it over the years. But at the time, the rents were $350 a month. We bumped those up to $500 at that time. And they've gone up a little bit since then. But at the time, I said, wow, the, the cash flow I make on this property will pay for my student loans. And so it was addicting. I'm like, wow, that's that's awesome. So did it the old fashioned way, saved up money for the next down payment and then the next property. I'm like, yeah, I think my monthly cash flow paid for my car payment and just really started building it slowly that way. So it was a duplex one year, a duplex the next year, a four unit, a seven unit, that that type of thing. So started building slowly like that. And then every now and then a large project would come along or potential private lender that would hold the paper for a large deal. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how we got into it. And what age were you when you bought that first duplex? Almost 24. It's like 23 years old. Yeah. Okay. So you got started pretty early. I did. Yeah. And again, you know, you're not making a lot of money at that time, but what we did do was save everything we could, lived really cheaply. You know, when our friends were upgrading their homes and their cars and traveling a lot, we lived really cheap and saved everything we could into buying investment real estate. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's a common like inhibitor for a lot of 23, 25, 28 year olds out there. Those young professionals, they see that duplex. It kind of sounds appealing, but they peel back the numbers and they look at it. And it's like, okay, this thing might cash flow three or $400 a month. It's like not not super exciting, but once you start to get several of those built up, that's when it really starts to uh, kind of change things. And it's, it's all about the momentum, right? I know a lot of people, they start out and they're like, hey, I want to buy a thousand units this year. And that's great. We'd never step on anybody's 100x, 10x goals and, and things like that. But sure. <laughs> sometimes just taking that step. And if that's just buying a rental property, if it's buying one, and then you've got your eyes set on bigger things, but you're never going to get there without taking those first steps. So I think just doing the deals and getting that momentum going is key because success breed success. So if you, whether it's a two unit or a 10 unit, but you you want to get to that, like say thousand unit goal, you've got to keep the momentum going and just kind of build on each little success. So when was exactly in your real estate investing journey that that kind of light bulb clicked on where you said, Hey, I'm going to do this full time. Like this is going to be my career rather than the corporate world. Yeah. I think very early on, that was the goal. At the time when we started, I didn't know anything about private money. Didn't know that seller financing was available. Didn't know how I was going to get from 20 units to 40, let alone the 300 we had when we quit our day jobs and the, what we have today. In 2005, I had, so I had 23 units under my belt and I met a gentleman who was quote unquote retiring, selling off the piece of his portfolio. He said he would hold the paper. So it was my first million dollar deal, 1.1 million. He said, Hey, if you come up with 10% down, I'll hold the mortgage on, on the rest. You know, he held a more like a, I don't know, it was a 20 or 25 year mortgage, but I, I borrowed against my 401k, borrowed against savings, took a line of credit, all these things that the financial experts say you shouldn't do, but sure. look, it worked. And if you have the discipline to do it, that's how it can be done. Sometimes you have to borrow against yourself to make it happen. So it was tight, but we did that deal and paid things down. And then that provided, you know, that just amped up the cash flow to the next level. So I realized then there was a bigger 
bigger way and a better way. Cause that was a lot of like four plus unit types of properties, like so four to 14. And that just the kind of the economies of scale of running a 10 unit versus running a two unit really opened my eyes and said, okay, now I have to start focusing on bigger deals. But at the same time, I still had this mindset of not taking partners, not doing syndications. It was just like, hey, I don't want to, I don't want anybody involved, which I'm very glad we did early on because I think it helped build a baseline of credibility. So when we did take on some debt partners over the last year or syndicate our first deal, it became way easier than I thought it would be to raise the money because we had such a lengthy time of experience. It's not necessary. It just, that's kind of the path that we took in it. And that's the way it worked out. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about like the logistics of when you're growing this portfolio. You said you bought this package, $1.1 million package deals. It came with a lot of fourplexes, eight units, up to 14 units. These are all in your home market from what I understand, but those are still kind of spread out, lots of properties to manage. And at this point, I'm sure you're really like experiencing all these headaches of managing maybe dozens plus of different properties all spread across the city. So what kind of uh, lessons did you take away from that phase of your investing journey? Well, what I learned when we went from 20 to 79 units like overnight with that came a maintenance guy and then I was still kind of dragged in a couple different directions with the property management but there was a sort of pseudo retired lady that lived in one of the buildings husband had passed away a few years before and she just kind of fell into showing units for me and she was my first real property manager so it ate away at some of my profit but I realized well hey if I don't have to worry about going out and leasing the units or, or monkeying around with painting or cleaning and things that I was really terrible at anyways then I can focus on going to do a deal and and so the same way that I said, gosh, I'll, I'll do this for, you know, that very first deal that paid for my student loans. Well, if this next deal just pays for a maintenance person or, or pays for a property manager, that's kind of how I looked at it. I still had a lot of hands on in terms of paying the bills and, and just directing traffic, but it took that responsibility of t- doing those tasks away from me so I could focus on my day job, focus on my family, that type of thing. Yeah. So when you're talking about the mindset it requires to grow from that very first duplex to now 650 plus units, walk us through what that took? Like, what was your mindset? What were your goals? Kind of walk us through that. I can tell you, honestly, early on, I didn't think big enough. I thought maybe 30 or 40 units would have been adequate. And it probably would be if I just kept my mind small and didn't want to do big and amazing things. So I, I started and kind of fell into like this personal development mindset when I was working at one of my corporate jobs. And that was one of the great things in corporate America was that one of the companies, I mean, it was culture where everybody was reading the latest personal development book and trying to have some sort of new catchphrase or new initiative they're working on. But one of the managers, I had said, look, you really need to listen to Jim Rohn audiobooks, like get on this personal development train. And I like started journaling and, and thinking about goals. And I just got addicted to this whole like personal development mindset. And that really shifted my goal from like buying a unit a year or a couple buildings a year to kind of creating a better version of myself so I could be as big and bad as I ever wanted to be. So I remember <laughs> setting my goals in my first journal and I look back and, and like everything I put in there from like 10, 12 years ago has happened. And it's pretty wild how thinking big when I thought, hey, I'll have 500 units by 2017 and that happens. There's no way I would have known how that would have happened 10 years ago. It just, it did. And so I think it's important to sort of model out what are the next five, 10, 15 years of your life look like and really think big. I mean, I think most of us underestimate what we can actually achieve in 10 years, but you're going to overestimate what you can achieve in a day. We're always got these punch lists and checklists and you're never going to get it all done in a day. Yeah. But if you're like, hey, I'll buy 10,000 units in 10 years, it's such a long time that it's, you could probably do more than that. You're just 
just sort of underestimate the long run and shortchange the short run. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's really important to talk about that mindset because that's kind of what it all starts with for you yep. is listening to those gym room audio books and kind of developing that mindset. How long would you say you were kind of in that phase of really working on that mindset before you kind of started to gain a lot of momentum? Was it simultaneous? I'm sure to some extent it was. It's sort of like when I started diving into that, that's when deals definitely started coming my way. It was embracing this law of attraction, having an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. And so I'd say that all kind of happened simultaneously. Now I was still grinding away like crazy at my day job and grinding away at trying to build the rental portfolio. But at the time, I think what seemed like major steps, I mean, it was so hard to go. If I added 20, 30 or 40 units a year, that was huge to me. And then now I don't think I look at any deal that's less than 40 units. So it changes and you just start thinking bigger. But I just realized that that personal development has to be kind of a continual thing. I mean, sometimes you can overdose on it. You don't, I mean, if all you do is read personal development books and you're not actually living, then how are you going to get it done? And I see like, I mean, sometimes you see that a lot, like people will go to, they'll join 10 masterminds. But if that's all you do is mastermind, then when do you actually have time to do deals or live your life? So I think it was, you know, just sort of finding that balance and then embracing it. When you have that strike of motivation to listen to a couple audio books or blaze through a couple really good personal development books and, and journal, take that, but don't feel bad if you don't journal for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. I mean, you're going to go through these ups and downs and phases of, of when you get that kind of sparks of creativity. Yeah, I really love that. And it's like kind of what you said, it's a balance, right? So with that mindset, you need a little bit of it. Well, you need a good amount of it, but you can't stay in that phase forever and only work on those mindsets and go to those masterminds and things like that. Like you've got to actually put what you're learning into action and do things right before it's even worth anything. And I think it is super important to have network and have the mindsets and go to the conferences and have the masterminds and go to the conferences and things like that. But if that's all you do, you're going to have so much informational overload that you can't put it out there in the real world. So sometimes it's just about fire ready aim, just go do it and then figure out how to make it work later on. Sometimes it's better just to get out there and do the deal than it is to like just overload yourself with all the information in the world. Then you're going to you see it all the time where people then just overthink it, overanalyze it, and they become that analysis paralysis thing where then they can never take action because it's all these what ifs. You know, they're worried about naming their company and the importance <laughs> of that as opposed to actually just going out and trying to analyze deals. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I know so many people that are guilty of trying to come up with a clever LLC name and it's like, you don't even have a deal yet. What's the worry with the LLC name? Like, don't worry about that. Like, make some offers, analyze some deals. So, yeah, you're so right there. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you and dig into a little bit is you mentioned you didn't leave your full time day job at corporate America until you had over 300 units. So that was a long time, I'm sure, for you to have both been an employee and also a real estate investor part-time. So what did that look like? Any kind of piece of advice you have for those types of people who are doing that, which is a, I'm doing that. Many of the listeners know that I still have a full-time day job as an engineer. So I can sympathize with those people. It's a lot of to do. You have to find that work-life balance. I mean, it's hard and you're going to burn the candle at both ends. So it's really important to take care of your loved ones and your social network. And, and you do end up sacrificing a lot of lost time, whether it's away from family or missing out on social things because you're so driven to doing your passion of real estate and then maybe kind of paying the bills with the day job. So I think I probably stuck around the day job a little too long, but I was making great money. I had fun with it. And it was kind of that golden handcuffs. You know, there's a lot of fear I had in terms of walking away. I, I could have absolutely walked away much sooner, but I definitely had this fear mindset like, oh my gosh, I can't leave this job that's paying me great money every month. So I think just maybe that building up your confidence factor and knowing that when you walk away, the universe is going to provide for you and you're going to have more opportunity because you're focused on the real estate and the entrepreneurial stuff much more. But I think it's all about balance when you are kind of burning candle on both ends. Make sure that you don't don't lose sight of what's important. Don't be afraid to take that risk. I think you know you, you could stay around in that too long and burn yourself out, sort of really not make as much progress as you would if you were focused on one thing and one thing only. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
definitely agree there. Well, when you're talking about like more of the nuts and bolts of real estate investing, what are some of the lessons you learned in, in growing from that first two units to now over 600 units? Like what kind of strategies worked well for you? How did you, you know, acquire these properties? You mentioned you did some creative stuff. So tell us about that. So early on, before I learned about the creative side, much, much more on the creative side of it, I started nurturing like realtor relationships, broker relationships, and that I wanted to be the guy for whatever type of deal I was focusing on. I wanted to be the guy that they came to if we were buying foreclosures and rehabbing them to rent out. I wanted to be the guy that the certain two or three realtors I worked with would come to. So I nurtured those relationships a lot. I nurtured my banking relationships. So when we had a deal ready to go, it wasn't a brand new thing that we had to start over from scratch on. It was, I just wanted to make sure that they knew me and that we had a solid relationship relationship on solid ground so that we could the deals could happen. And it's the same strategy, but on a bigger scale at this point. So I'm looking at bigger deals. So dealing with a different type of broker, but again, nurturing those relationships, they may not have a deal today, may not have a deal tomorrow, but when they have one or they think they'll have one, as a case in point right now, I have the first and only look at a property. Wouldn't really hit the market for another two or three years, but because of the relationships I built, I've got a first kind of look under the hood on it. And that's important because then I feel like I can take down the deal without any pressure of being in a competitive bidding war with somebody else. And then having that financial broker relationship where they're analyzing the deal and underwriting the numbers for me. So I don't even have to mess around with doing all that work of plugging it into a spreadsheet or our deal analyzer. They've already got that end covered for me. So that's just the important of not just building the relationship, but building the friendship with these guys and gals. They're going to be people that you do business with hopefully repeatedly over the years. So you know, just that, that's part of your team, part of the team building thing. And it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, sometimes it's awkward. You might be young and you're dealing with a banker that's 20 years older than you. But what happens is over the years, you know, you go out for lunch, you go out for beer, you become friends, you see each other's lives evolve and you become more than just friendly, you become friends or better than social acquaintances. And so that's really important. And I think that especially if you're in a smaller market, there's nothing better than having that relationship to where hey, they can call you up and you've got the deal in hand as opposed to it even hitting the MLS. Yeah, sure. It's one of those, your net worth is your network things, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you also dig into this point is you're investing all in your home market, which is Erie, Pennsylvania. So tell us about that. And many people, when they reach the number of units that you have, have to be spread over at least like a couple markets or at least a bigger market. So you've managed to grow your portfolio in the Erie, Pennsylvania market, which I don't know too much personally about. So tell us, you know, about some of the lessons learned there. Sure. I think it just started out naturally. I never thought it was an option to buy in other areas because I wasn't thinking big enough. I, I was people would say, well, would you ever invest in like Nashville? I'm like, well, why would I buy a duplex in Nashville? That was the small minded thinking I had. I didn't think, well, yeah, maybe I would today if I was buying a two or 300 unit complex. So the deals we did, I mean, it was through a lot of it was through networking with private sellers, through brokers that had relationships with private sellers. And so there's been a lot of runway in, in terms of buying the property that I wanted to own in my portfolio just in my hometown. And I said, well, it's easy enough. I, I can build a business where we self-manage and everything's self-contained. And so I like being close to everything we own. But at the same time, we are open to investing in other areas. Yeah. So I think that's one thing that uh, most real estate investors kind of have in common is they're investing in real estate because it's like tangible, right? They want to be able to drive by it, see it, put their hands on it, as opposed to those paper assets, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, things, right? So I completely understand the uh, inclination to kind of invest in your home market where you're comfortable at and many people do. So you're just lucky enough that it's worked in your home market and you're in one of those markets where those numbers make sense for you. Right. When you look at analyzing a market, I mean, Erie's not, it's one of the slowest growing cities 
cities in the country. I mean, there's not a lot. I mean, it's going through a resurgence, but it's a blue collar town. There's the region's great. We're close to Pittsburgh, Buffalo and Cleveland. So like an hour and a half from each of those cities. And I think like the Rust Belt in particular and these sort of like smaller markets are oftentimes overlooked because really, you know, you're investing in real estate for income or cash flow. You need to be looking at a market like that, that you can buy a property that actually makes sense. When people tell me they look at four and five cap properties, I don't care how nice it is. It could be an A-class property, but I have a hard time making money on it or the money I want on a five cap. So unless there's some other play there like appreciation or some super crazy great value add, I like to buy to know that, hey, on the best day and the worst day, I'm still going to make money. And I think in, in your blue collar areas that are mainly renter markets that you're going to be able to make money, kind of your metrics, nothing's really affected by the overall outside economy. So if the stock market drops, that's not going to affect your ability to rent your apartment in Dayton, Ohio or Erie, Pennsylvania or Buffalo, New York. I mean, people still work and they still need a place to live. Yeah, sure. No, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, with that slower uh, population growth or something, maybe that fends off some of those outside investors. You know, they look at Erie, Pennsylvania on paper and say, ah, nah, it doesn't look like a great market. And here you are over there living it, working it, making it work for you. So yeah, good stuff. <laughs> well, hey, I wanted to ask you, what type of advice would you have for someone who's wanting to grow their smaller portfolio through multifamily properties and kind of break into those larger properties? That can kind of seem like a pretty tough barrier for a lot of people out there. Maybe they've got some dude duplexes, small multis, but they want to break into that next level. What advice would you have for someone like that? I would say first and foremost, seek out a mentor, seek out that maybe that mom and pop landlord that's been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years that has a really nice portfolio. And they're going to have a gem or two in that portfolio that maybe it's a 20 or 30 unit property that they're willing to hold paper on. They've self-managed it. They really enjoy the fruits of what real estate can provide, but they're tired. They're 60, 70 years old. They don't want to do the day-to-day management anymore. Sometimes that's the best avenue and they're going to be a lot more flexible on their terms. You know, they may just pay 5% down or 10% down. They'll hold a mortgage for 20, 30 years. That's an oftentimes overlooked strategy. And I think it will pay huge dividends for anybody. It worked for me. It's worked for a lot of people that I know that have gotten into real estate and kind of taken that step from one level to the next level. All right. Yeah, Jason, I definitely agree with you there. And yeah, I like to tell myself that if it were easy, everyone would do it right and there'd be no money in it. So... Well, hey, I also wanted to ask you about some other real estate experience I understand you have under your belt, and that is a laundromat and a car wash. So tell us about that. Sure. So when I left my day job, I kind of suffered from the shiny object syndrome and I thought I could make money in any number of different diverse ways and saw that there's a laundromat and car wash for sale. I purchased it. Seemed like a great idea at the time. What I learned through that was that kind of more of a sea area and it really wasn't uh, the greatest, but it had a great clientele. I mean, tons of loyal customers in terms of the car wash and, and laundromat. I mean, these people... This was a car wash and laundromat combined. Correct. Yeah. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? <laughs> well, that's what I would think. But but at the same time, uh, I probably paid a little too much for it than I needed to. And, and it was a very labor intensive sort of scenario. So there was full-time employees in place, but I found myself then having to manage those employees and then always getting pulled into just things that I didn't need to be spending my time and be it from like doing payroll to going and making change at the laundromat to going to like pick up like vending, like snacks for the vending machines and things like that. So it, was, it made money, but it wasn't the same type of money that I would make by going and flipping one house or going and picking up one multifamily property. You know, it made money. I kind of struggled with it for a few years because of the time factor, right? It was there every weekend or I'd have to hire somebody or have somebody on my team go there to help the employees at the, at the laundromat and car wash. And I, so it was really like buying myself another job, which I was the point of, not the point of leaving my day job. The point was I'd have to have a real job. So I ended up selling that to, uh, and I held the paper on it to um, my property manager who, you know, he's growing his portfolio 
portfolio in, in rentals. He's looking for other streams of income. He's a little bit younger and has that drive and ability to juggle a hundred things at once. And so for me, it just became like my kids are getting older and I just didn't have all of that extra time to do that. So I'd certainly recommend that to the folks that are, you're trying to create multiple streams of income. If you want to make an extra thousand dollars a month, you can go and drive Uber, but are you going to do that for the next 50 years of your life? Hopefully not. And that was kind of the thing I saw with the car wash was like in laundromat was that, yeah, I can make an extra couple grand a month, but to what end? I mean, I still have to work for it. And, and so that's when I ultimately made that decision to try and transition out of it and, to, and stick on the things that can pay you while you sleep. Yeah, definitely. I'm always very cautious about getting into things where I know it's going to just be another job for myself. Like you said, I'm not trying to acquire more jobs. I'm trying to acquire more passive income. So if there's no synergies with what I'm doing, I try to say no to it. For example, like I've got this list of crazy ideas. Like I'm going to start a kayak company and build my own kayaks. And at one time I had this crazy idea to, you know, create an app and sync it to a yard mowing business, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, they go back to the basics. Like there's absolutely zero synergy with what you're currently doing. Do you really want to do that? And just because you can doesn't mean you should. (laughs) That's true. I mean, if you want another job, that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. I know a lot of very successful people that have like 10 different companies and they work very hard at every endeavor they do, but they must get their joy out of working like 20 hours a day. I have other hobbies and and ways I like to spend my time that, you know, I don't want to be tied to just work for work's sake. I did that with the day job. So it's more about creating that passive income and continuing on that path of being able to make money while you sleep. Yeah, sure. Well, Jason, it's really kind of interesting to kind of see your path from that first duplex. And, you know, we'll throw in this laundromat car wash in there, like your humble beginnings to now over 650 units. So lots of lessons and takeaways that you provided. And I really like what you had to offer around the mindset. I think that's super important to the audience members listening out there. So yeah, it's just really cool to kind of hear someone like yourself who has nothing to promote, no incentive to tell people about real estate, your journey and share with your experiences. So yeah, thanks for that a lot. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, definitely. Well, before we wrap up, we wrap up every episode with a lightning round, just a series of questions we like to fire at our guests. Are you up for it? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, the first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that? I'd say the biggest hurdle was simply the money and age factor. So probably like a lot of your listeners, I was young, 23, 24 years old, didn't have any money. But I tell anybody that'll listen, I, I took the first 3500 I ever made and saved and invested that in real estate. And it's hard for banks and other investors to take you seriously when you're that young. But if you read and take all the knowledge you can, you're going to earn your credibility really quickly. Yeah, definitely. I like that. Well, Jason, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? I do. I think a couple of the things that I do routinely and I make it a part of my daily habits is I I try to exercise every day. I go boxing and do like some CrossFit type stuff. But even if it's just going to run or or jump on the elliptical, but taking an hour of time for physical fitness, because that promotes your mental fitness. I try to read something every day. So I probably have like 10 books that I'm in the middle of reading. I I jump around and I think that's pretty common, but I try to kind of a personal development junkie and a knowledge junkie. So I'm just trying to learn, continually learn. And so if I read for 20, 30 minutes a day. I mean, some days I read for two hours and some days I read for two minutes, but I try to make sure during the week that I average about a half hour a day of just reading personal development or business related books. Yeah, that's awesome. It's definitely addicting once you kind of open up that uh, pop top, if you will, and uh, dig into that world of personal development and finance and just all that stuff. So yeah. Well, Jason, do you have an online resource that you find valuable in your day to day? 
I do. And it's funny. And one of the things that where I like to kind of spend some time, not too much, but I, there's got a couple different Facebook groups where there's a lot of knowledge and questions, you know, kind of back and forth questions. I don't necessarily have to participate in the conversation, but more of the thread of the question and the answers that come up and looking at the conversations that have and flow from that. So for instance, I part of like Rod Cleef's multifamily mastermind yeah, group, that's a good group one. On, on Facebook. And there's, we have one for our local RIA. There's a lot of them out there. A lot of, and I think any resource you can get on Facebook, whether it's a group of 10 people or 20,000 people that are kind of throwing questions out there about deals and, and or just even how to approach some of the day-to-day aspects of the real estate business is hugely rewarding. But I would say that you want to jump on somewhere where nobody has anything to sell. If it's some a scenario like that, then you're just going to get a lot of people pushing things on you as opposed to really trying to provide help or provide value. Yeah, sure. Definitely so. Well, do you have a book that you recommend to the audience members? And if so, why? I do. I always recommend and I gift a lot. One is The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. He used to be the publisher of Success Magazine. But The Compound Effect speaks to the power of like small daily habits and, and small daily changes can change your trajectory over time by leaps and bounds. So it's the idea that if you have a cupcake a day, well, you're not going to gain 100 pounds by eating a cupcake a day, but that, that snowballs and all of a sudden you're 30 pounds overweight. But it's like that some of these changes in these daily habits, you don't see the effects immediately, but you see them over time. And that's how you can get from you know small daily habits, small daily changes that can create lifetime success, but it takes time. It's something that happens over time. And then the uh, second book that I recommend, and it's it's a business book, but it's um, the old, old Charlie's Almanac. So it's about Charlie Munger and it's a compendium of his speeches and writings. He's Warren Buffett's right-hand man. So if you Google Berkshire Hathaway, everybody knows who Warren Buffett is because he's the guy that's out in the news, but they don't hear about Charlie Munger as much, but he has like this crazy timeless wit and humor, but also really practical advice for how they analyze their investments. And you can apply that to like really any sort of aspect of your life. And I just found it really interesting to read, you know, how they analyze their investments and sort of try and apply some of the same principles to my real estate portfolio. Yeah. Awesome. Well, last question in the lightning round, Jason, if you're to give advice to your 20 year old self to get started investing in real estate, which you almost did, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to think bigger, but be patient. I think a lot of times you can become so obsessed. That's all you think about, all you do, and you sort of lose sight of what's important in your life. And so I'm having way more success now at age 42 than when I was 23, but I don't have to obsess about the real estate business to a fault. It's just what we do and who we are, as opposed to just trying to live, eat, breathe, sleep the stuff to a fault to where, you know, maybe you annoy your spouse or you annoy your friends because that's all you do. You can create some balance to it. And so I think that's probably just the thing be create a little bit more balance in your life when you're younger. Yeah, it's definitely an area of my life that I recognize I need to have a little bit more balance. I actually just did a Friday Fundamental short episode on the podcast about balance between health, wealth, and happiness recently. So yeah, rings true and uh, definitely valuable advice for the listeners out there. Well, Jason, as we're wrapping up here, I'm sure the audience members would love to learn more about you, connect with you, reach out to you. Where's the best place for them to find you at? So three easy ways. I don't have anything to sell. So they can find me on Facebook on my personal page, just Jason Perro. They can find my LinkedIn profile personally at jasonperro at yahoo.com. Awesome. Well, Jason, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a lot of fun talking with you and getting to know you. Look forward to having you back on sometime in the future. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure, Jacob. Yeah, absolutely. Well, take care, Jason. Thanks, man. Have a great day. You too. Bye. 
All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Jason Perro. Hey, I really hope you're getting value from this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about any of the resources we mentioned in the show today, you can find those in the show notes of the podcast. As always, for more information, resources, and to connect with me, visit www.jacobayers.com. Till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.